Welcome to Harvest to Pour, the business of beverages, with your host, Matthew Schiff. This is the podcast for all of those who are involved in the agriculture all the way to the distribution of beverages. And now your host, Matthew Schiff. Hello and welcome to Harvest to Pour, the business of beverages. I'm your host, Matthew Schiff. And today I am here with Howard Lerner. The, he is the original founder of Caldi's Coffee. Caldi's was founded here in St. Louis. It's a third wave wholesale roaster and full service. It has front shops, roasteries, and it has grown into to be in about three different states, I think. Or is it just Atlanta, Nashville, Kansas City, some in Missouri? Is there any place else there, Howard? Anyway, how you oh, doing? I'm great. Thank you, Matt. Thanks so much for having me. No, I think you pretty much covered it. You know, there may be, you know, there's a lot of wholesale out there, so... You know, it can, but under the Caldi's label, a retail is limited to those three states. All right. Well, before we really get into it, tell us a little bit about yourself and how Caldi's got its start. Well, Caldi's, well, I was a journalist before I was in the coffee business. And so I, in fact, I want to correct one point. I, I was not the founder. I was a co-founder. co-founder I have a partner. Sorry. Suzanne Langlois was my partner and that you, you know bring that up because part of the origin story, of course, is Suzanne's half of that story. And we were graduate students at, in journalism at the University of Missouri in the early 90s. And we we actually became working journalists. I was working in Washington, D.C. And Suzanne was a reporter in Jefferson City covering the State House. And uh, we worked. And then I came back to St. Louis to work for the St. Louis Business Journal. And she was at the Riverfront Times. And um, we started talking about starting a business. And we thought about maybe some Real estate development, historic uh, renovation, restoration was popular back then. And um, and then we decided that that was too expensive because we really didn't have any money. And, and so we decided, well, we love coffee. Why not do something coffee related? And we had some great experiences in graduate school with a uh, cafe, a little espresso roastery, but not a roastery, but a, a little walk-up cafe in Columbia, Missouri. Those of the time will remember Espresso Arno, which was right next to the Blue Note. And what was the old box office at uh, at the Blue Note, which is right on 9th Street in Columbia, Missouri. And they had a little espresso machine, nowhere to sit. You just walk in, order your coffee and, and get out. And it was, uh, it really inspired us. We loved the, uh, we loved the vibe and we, you know, we just thought that was really great. So, you know, we thought, well, maybe we can do something like that. And so That's that right. was the origin of, of, of the idea of opening a coffee place. And uh, yeah, so, so that's where that came from. What really stuck out to you about Espresso Gino? Espresso Arno. Espresso Arno is, you know, it, the coffee was a very high quality. You know, at the time, there really wasn't, there weren't options. I never had, I had espresso, but I never had tried good espresso. And I don't think I would have known what good espresso was. It was, you know, there was espresso. And in my mind, it was just simply a small shot of strong coffee. Uh, Obviously, there's so much more to it. But, you know, I, and I enjoyed the way the baristas would hand prepare each serving, each, each shot, grind, and then with great care, tamp and in, insert the portafilter, that's that handle, into the espresso machine and extract at that nine bars and really provide that crema, provide that great aroma, the, the beautiful appearance of the emulsion of the coffee, the liquid coffee and the carbon dioxide, the gases, all of those things produce that sudsy crema that we always identify with, with an excellent espresso. So that's those experiences. Plus Tom was the owner. He was a wonderful guy and we just had some really nice conversations about everything. He was just, a, you know, it's amazing. 
a good barista can be super busy and still be able to give undivided attention to the customer and, and have a chat. And that's a, that's a multitasking role. So we were in awe and we really enjoyed that. And it just took a little while for that to realize, well, it's for us to realize that maybe that's something we could do. Maybe we were looking for an idea. We were two potential, two entrepreneurs looking for an idea for some inspiration. And uh, newspapers were kind of struggling at the time. So we, we, it was before the internet really took off, but it was the 24 hour news cycle was, you know, with cable had really started. So newspapers were kind of, you know, struggling to compete. Things have changed a little bit, but, but that's where we were just kind of frame the culture at the time. Oh, great. And now that you had that inspiration and you, and that energy of wanting to start possibly this coffee shop. What were some of the first challenges you ran up against and, you know, things you were unexpected? Boy, well, aside from just the cost of opening a store, finding a location, let's just go back, finding a location, you know, they says, well, the most important thing, your location, location, the most, the biggest cliche in business is absolutely true. You know, without location, you're, there are ways of being successful without great location, but you know, it doesn't hurt. And so we really realize that, well, our own neighborhood, we lived in an area of St. Louis called Demondin. That was the location we wanted to, we identified that location. Hey, we, we were tired of driving to work. We didn't want to pay for parking anymore and all the hassles that we had working in our downtown newspaper jobs. Um, we, we thought it would be great to kind of roll out of bed and wander down to work on foot. And that was, that was kind of one of our goals. And it happened to be, I think, the most, or if not one of the most iconic neighborhoods in St. Louis. So Demond so neighborhood is, that's where we were. And we were fortunate enough to make enough friends in that area, uh, the other businesses and antique shops, things like that. And a woman who owned an antique shop said, oh, well, this space next door is opening up. And we jumped on it. And that was our, that was our biggest challenge. And it was pretty easy to solve because we, again, put our, our contacts and our friends and our neighbors to work to help us locate a good location. So it wasn't, okay. wasn't that now, hard. So you got, you got your first, you, your win. Your location. Mm -hmm. Yes. Now you got to get the coffee and you got to learn how to roast it. How'd that go? <laughs> well, let me, like if we didn't, we didn't roast from the beginning. The first year ah. we were buying the coffee of a roaster that was already in existence. So, okay. And that's kind of interesting. We, we actually reached out to, I mentioned Espresso Arno at the beginning in Columbia, Missouri. Tom's the owner, his, his contact in coffee as a supplier was Sugar Creek Coffee in Kansas City, Missouri. They're no longer around, unfortunately, but we connected with them and they, they sold us our coffee and created our blends for us and worked closely with us and hosted us to teach us everything they knew about coffee. And, and so we, we, we grew with them and we quickly became their biggest customer. And in fact, it was funny. We, this is again, you couldn't get like overnight shipping. We were using so much coffee and it was costing so much to ship it because it's so heavy that, that we would have, we would have the coffee brought in on a Greyhound. So that was, you know, the logistics. A Greyhound. Were, uh, a challenge. Yeah. Yeah. So, so we had a Greyhound bus. I'd literally drive my pickup truck down to the Greyhound bus station in downtown St. Louis and get our coffee off the bus. It was the cheapest way to do it. It was like, buy a ticket for your coffee. You buy a ticket That's for your coffee. Did. They put it on the other part where they put the luggage and stuff and yeah. they get their They're own like, seats. No, no, no. <laughs> right. So they just like shoved it under the, in the little, you know, I'll see it in the movies. Wow. <laughs> That's even drive, some innovative drive thinking there, though. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was kind of a 
moment of rare moment of brilliance. It's like, wow, it's being cheaper to put it on a bus than it is to ship at UPS. Ah, so at what point did you is. realize or feel the need you wanted to roast? Yeah. So the roasting started uh, almost a year to the day after we opened. It was in October. We opened in October of 1994. And uh, in October of 1995, we installed a roaster. And we realized that we were, you know, this again, was Greyhound buses. <laughs> this isn't really sustainable. We're, you know, we were using so much coffee and we hadn't really even started selling uh, coffee beans yet to our customers. Mm-hmm. They, you know, that's a real, that was a, at the time, at least I don't know if it's still the case, it was a real trust issue. You know, people mm-hmm. didn't know who we were. We're good enough for people to buy a cup of coffee, but to buy a bag of beans, that was getting into the, their habit or routine. So we hadn't made that impact on our customers yet. So we, we just you know, we had to, we had to, you know, we still had a tremendous amount of coffee to buy, but we knew we had a lot of, we had a lot of growth, a lot of potential. And so we started researching in this, by the time this early internet, we were able to make a connection with a gentleman in Reno, Nevada named Sherman Dodd. And he was one of the early manufacturers of shop roasters, we call micro coffee roasters. And we ordered a, I flew out to, you know, Nevada in the summer of 95 and spent a, a week there with Sherman. He was showing me how it worked and I placed an order as soon as I got back. And a few months later, I was, we had our roaster delivered and it was installed completely wrong and we had a big fire. <laughs> you had a big fire, huh? Yeah. Cause they used uh, the, the, there was no company that could install uh, coffee roasters at the time. That really wasn't a thing. So we just hired the HVAC company and thought it was more like a dryer than a roaster. It's oh, not, man. unless your, unless your heating system gets up to 500 degrees, you know, and it just, it just, they put the wrong vent on and we just learned a lot about that. So never made that mistake again. And if you go to the original cafe called these, you'll see the original smokestack where the original roaster was on the side of the building. Um, oh, okay. So kind of look closely. It's, it's still there. <laughs> it's still there. there. Just, it's not it's, going anywhere. Yeah. You, you, you've learned what not to do the hard way. I've learned everything by what not, every, every element of that shop. I can point every element was a mistake. Everything is a mistake. Really? <laughs> right. from, I mean, just, I mean, a, a mistake that was then corrected. Or yeah. Not. Yeah. You learn but, from it. Yeah. You learn. Absolutely. Was, the whole place is like a, just a tattered textbook. Yeah. You mentioned back, uh, bringing in roasting and having the people trust that you were roasting and now, you know, instead of having a guest roaster, was that something new to the scene? Roasting uh, with a storefront? Oh yeah. There was nobody roasting. No one had a coffee roaster in the window in St. Louis at the time. That was, you know, people were still talking about coffee as being free or like five cents. I mean, you know, you, why would I buy a cup of coffee for at the time, a dollar 25, which was a lot of money for a cup of coffee. And that was our big plan. Um, to change the world, but we're competing with the free office coffee. You know, you get your coffee in the office and uh, when you get to work, why should I pay for that? Or coffee at the, the St. Louis bread company that they call Panera now, or you could get it at, at the you know, gas station. It's coffee was a, it was something you really didn't think about. It was just something that was sort of bitter and it was a caffeine delivery system. And that's really all, all it was, it was just mm. that it wasn't a, you know, there were some glimmers of it in some areas like Espresso Arno yeah. for those who could appreciate it, but nothing really in St. Louis. There were some espresso machines, but I don't really think anyone knew how to use them properly. 
what do you believe helped you start to change minds and offer a little more for their coffee and be accepting of roasting in the window and serving what you what you make? Well, I I am not going to try to create this fiction that we knew anything about coffee more than just thinking what you learned about handling it, you know, for a yeah. year. I I was not a connoisseur of coffee, cupping and, you know, grading coffee and all the all the cues, you know, cucumbers, all of these these features that came later, they weren't around yet. We weren't this really wasn't a quality play as much as a uh a a reality that we just couldn't couldn't continue ordering coffee from a roastery in Kansas City. They had very good coffee. If they had been local, we may never have roasted coffee, you know, or at least not for quite a while. We, it was not about, it, we did not have a quality problem. Um, our quality was better simply because the coffee was fresher. Really, most people were used, think about it, most people were used to cans of coffee, coffee mm -hmm. in a can, which had been popular since the railroad era when early, just your early grocery distribution started advertising and all of that stuff. That's what that started. And so that's what the flavor that people, and what's that flavor? That flavor is stale. That's what people are used to. When people tasted coffee bef before, you know, the coffee house movement, the flavor that they were accustomed to was, that flavor was stale. And if you're used to stale, no once different. it's not stale, it's going to be a lot better. You're going to, yeah. you're going to notice that mm -hmm. coffee here. And I know it sounds kind of silly and obvious, but it, it wasn't obvious. Most people, my age, I'm 58, most of I grew up, if, if, if it wasn't from a can, it was instant coffee. There were a few yeah. little coffee shops where you could get coffee beans, but you couldn't get a cup, you couldn't buy a cup of coffee there. It was just a coffee, like coffee bean shop. There were a few of those in town, but that wasn't, it was a different kind of a thing. It's hard to describe that, but. So we would, so the, to the point that we, it wasn't, a, a, it wasn't a really so much a quality play as a logistics and just a, a business decision to do that. And we thought it would be cool to put the roaster in the window because when I saw that roaster, it was beautiful. It looked like a choo-choo train. Really did. It looked like sitting yeah. in the window. It looked like and people, kids would walk by and they go, oh, look at the choo-choo. And, uh, and I'd be roasting in the window for people. And it was like, it was, it was like performance. And then, and. But we didn't really know how to make great coffee. We were just kind of following the steps, you know, pour it in, turn up the heat and wait 12 to 14 minutes and pull it out. And it was inconsistent and all over the place, but it didn't matter because it was all relative. It just, we would have been eaten alive by our competition today with that coffee, but we kept improving. And so, yeah, yeah, look at it through 1995 eyes, not, yeah. Absolutely. 20, That's what I, I, I'm eyes. really enjoying this journey of how things have grown. <laughs> it's and grown quite a bit. Yeah. And speaking of the journey, we're getting into the heart of what this podcast is about, is the Harvest Four. And when mm -hmm. I say that, again, for listener, I want to find out where you sourced, how you learned how to source coffee, how you started, like you just mentioned, bringing it up to make it your own, make it Caldi's. And then we're going to get a little bit into, you know, building out your shop and how you started selling it, how you started promoting that. And mm -hmm. you had baristas to train something new yeah. in, in that concept as well. Mm -hmm. So let's go back to the harvest. So how did you start finding out about green coffee, where it came from, 
how is it different? How is it different than it is now? Yeah. Well, now, today, if you are a coffee roaster or a, you know, a kind of sophisticated amateur, you, you have, you know, multitudes of, of options for acquiring green coffee. There's a company, for instance, called Sweet Maria's that is a website. You can order small amounts of green coffee and that, and, and roast at home. There was nothing like that in 1995. There was, there were no, no specialty brokers, even on a large scale, even if you wanted, if you were in the position of buying multiple bags of coffee, green coffee, unroasted coffee, pre-roasted, I should say coffee comes in these 154 pound bags. That's the way it was back then. Now there's smaller bags, but at the time it was 154 pound bags, the 70 kilos. And they come in these jute, they're like jute, people call them burlap, but it's really jute bags. And they, you know, you could order, there were maybe 10 different types of coffee that were available at the time to, to people like, like me and Suzanne. And we, so we bought Colombia's, we bought Ethiopians. We didn't have much choice of which farm or what region Colombia is. So, so, so diverse terrain within that small country based on altitude. So we really, we weren't sophisticated in any way, just like with the, on the espresso side, we really, we just, we just got what we could got, get, you know, and we, we ordered what we could get. And we, there were enough of companies like ours. There was, it was Caldi's and there's also other companies like Intelligentsia in Chicago. They were starting up around the same time, I think 1996, a couple years later. Other roasters, the roastery in Kansas City, all coming up at about the same time, PTs in the, in the region, all of them were kind of coming up at the same time. And we were facing these problems. So this new industry was growing. But at the beginning, it was very simple. You don't have a sophisticated and time-consuming and big learning curve when you only have five or 10 potential varietals that you have access to and maybe okay. a decaf. You know, so maybe a decaf. It quickly changed that we noticed the landscape was changing. All of a sudden, these different brokers are bringing on these specialty lines. They're all in New York or New Jersey or um, LA. And we'd make these connections and we would buy coffee from these brokers and they would educate us. They're used to cupping for the people who are putting coffee in cans. It still needs to be cupped. It's, cupping coffee is evaluating the quality of the green coffee. And what they were not used to is evaluating it from a, a, like a connoisseur level. They're used to evaluating on a palatability. Is this even drinkable? If it's drinkable, box checked, we'll go ahead and roast it and throw it in a can. That's really, and that was quite frankly what, like I would just say, Rinoco, a Rinoco, very mm -hmm. fine people. We, that was a hundred year old business that had, was, that would, was a big challenge for them because they were set up for mass producing coffee for hotels and restaurants and offices. We didn't have to recreate our system to appeal to the new third wave. I'll talk about third wave in a little bit, but the new sort of high level quality expectation that customers grew to have a few years after we opened. We were, we were able to create that industry uh, along with other roasteries of our size. So the industry really kind of grew for us, with us, oh. a specialty green coffee brokerage industry. So we, we didn't know it, but we were sort of, we, were, we, we had so many benefits that, you know, people today don't have. It's just, you try to get into coffee now and it's like advanced science. I, and yeah. it's, it's amazing. But today or yesterday or yesterday. 1995, a different story, much easier. So you were pushing the brokers who were doing cupping 
to be more detailed and more specific about what you were looking for. Yeah. You know, I mean, the brokers had an incentive that like they could sell their coffee for, I don't know, six to 10, 20 cents more a pound to us in small, small quantities. And with the expectation that we could get bigger and they knew that if we got bigger, they'd have a good loyal customer. And, and the only way that they're going to keep those relationships. So that relationship between a you know, this little unknown company called Caldi's and, and themselves good is to make sure that we got good coffee. So they would go out and get the very best coffees. They knew how to cup the coffee. You know, they realized, well, we can apply what we've been doing for these canners of coffee and, you know, volume roasters to these smaller roasters. You can apply what we know and we can just get the very best coffee. There's not a lot of it, but we can kind of send it to Howard and Suzanne and people like that. And we'd get it and our coffee all of a sudden was marginally better than a Renoco. And then it became a lot better because they were, were making more money. These brokers were making more money on, and now you had these brokers really able to sell coffee to two different types of customers. And now they're, they had a brand new vertical, really a brand new, a brand new stream of revenue. And that was these micro roasters. And that's what happened. And it just kept slicing and slicing and slicing. And so now you have this extremely rarefied community of specialty brokers that cater only to the, the most demanding and uh, specific micro roasters. It, it's, it's fascinating what's happened now. So, you know, the industry, we you talk about, if you want to talk about a compressed, fast moving growth and expansion of an industry, or at least a segment of an industry, look at coffee, you know, don't look at tech. Tech is slow compared to coffee. Wow. Is it All right. Because coffee didn't do anything for, you know, since 600 when it was discovered, it just went, it really, it really, you know, meteored in the past 30 years. That's interesting. That's really neat. Mm-hmm. So that improved quality of coffee, how did it start influencing the way, well, not only you roasted it, but the way you prepared it? Well, yeah. I mean, at some point, the industry, we, I'll talk about we, the industry realized that, okay, the brokers have done a fantastic job of sourcing coffees that stand out from the commodity coffees that are available to the, the larger commercial roasters. And so we have to now, now it was our turn in around 2006, 2007, 2008, the micro roasters and retailers, the Caldies of the world now given we're given this these this great blessing of fantastic coffees that could differentiate themselves in the market we had to now step up our skills to match the potential of those green coffees and and what happened was the the United States barista championship circuit was launched and that was a way of i mean it was it was a competition you know a national competition to see who who was the best barista in the world, it was actually, it was the world barista competition ultimately, but in this country, you know, it was a way to kind of, and it did a number of things. So you take, you're taking this thing that everyone's training their own baristas in all kinds of ways. Maybe my latte looks like, you know, the cappuccino across the town and this person's mocha looks like something, which all the drinks were, is like the wild west in, in making drinks. So how do we standardize these things? How do we make sure that cappuccino is a cappuccino? Because the best thing you can do for an industry is standardize the general concept 
and then compete on a, a on a level playing field. So at least the customer's expectation is that a cappuccino is going to be a, a third of milk and a little bit of frothy, velvety, almost like a melted ice cream consistency to it. We want to have that. So so the competitions, the judges were tr- the judges in these competitions uh, were trained to calibrate, and that's the term they use, calibrate their sensory expectations and visual expectations so that the the product is the same. So that all these baristas who are coming to compete in these competitions throughout the year, those baristas would all be making the drinks the same size, using the same volume of, of vessels, and the standards were the same. And what that did was it created the environment where you could have a product, a cappuccino could be compared. Like our cap now today, thanks to that, the call I'm happy to put Caldi's cappuccino up against any roaster in the country without fear that we're going to have some embarrassing difference. Like, well, our cappuccino is better because it's 20 ounces. You know, that's crazy. But that was what it was like in the yes, in the mid nineties and the in the even into the early two thousands. The All cappuccino right. is whatever I call it. It's like Yeah. So you know? now these now these uh, competitions incentivize you to send your baristas to make sure you are at the quality level expected of all baristas around the U.S. and around the world, for that matter. Yeah, it took it really. the The effect was not to create a new spectator sport because what could be more exciting than watching people make coffee? It's, like, it's amazing. But but what could? It's, it's, it's really. I mean, it's like about a grass growing competition. I know, and, um, but but people would fill. We had we hosted these barista competitions for years, and people would fill. We can get more people in there. We'd have these people making coffee, and people are watching them make coffee. Like, this is crazy. People are watching this. They did, and but that really wasn't the goal. The goal was to, I mean, to, was to have a standard that you could train to. I mean, that was ultimately mm-hmm. the goal. And so you, you know, it was brilliant. The I don't know if the United States Barista Committee was or the Guild. Was, was really thinking that that would happen. But what it did was it calibrated everybody. It educated yeah. the baristas and the consumers and the shop owners. And it said, okay, this is good, this is right, and this isn't right. This is a standard, this isn't a standard. And it wasn't just an arbitrary standard. It was a standard that was based on a true sensory improvement. A technically competent cappuccino is going to be a better experience, better sensory experience for the customer. Yeah, and yeah. that's the whole fundamental. That, that's it's it's not any different than the Olympics. Watching someone skate, you know, yeah. best skaters are the ones who get the best scores. Yeah, and I like how back and when we talked on other times, you advised me to have a, a coffee shop that I was consulting with create their own internal latte art competition between the baristas, right. and yeah. it was really unique. These. The barista, young baristas, they you could watch them in one night competing against each other, level up their skills in what would have taken probably months. It was really a really great piece of advice, and they still yeah. do that to this day. You know, it's it was one of those things that we seized upon early, and what you're describing is what what we call it in our in the coffee parlance is is a, a, a latte art throwdown. That's what they're yeah. called. And they're internal or sometimes very small invitational competitions where you invite baristas, usually like in an evening or on a weekend, maybe a slow night, and you hire a judge from out in the community, maybe like your best customers. You grab, Joe's a doctor, but he's really a good customer and he maybe tips well and all the baristas like him and he's a therapist. So just 
those kinds of people. You kind of say, hey, you want to be a judge? Say, well, I don't know how to be a judge. And say, well, we're going to show you how to be a judge. You're going to, we're going to meet for, you know, 40 minutes before the competition. And our, tra- our lead trainer is going to go over everything, what to look for and how to score and what, you know, all that. And, and visually and, and by taste, all of that. And then, then all of a sudden, this person has learned more about coffee and they're going to tell a lot of people, pick your biggest, biggest mouth customers and let them, let them spread the word and make them judges and, and give them a cup or something. And that's just going to be a fun evening. And now, you know, now the baristas have someone, an audience and they have an art platform in a sense. And they have a, you know, try doing that for your shoe store or your, you can't do it. You know, I'm not going to like, it's try doing that. Or if you're, it's, it's hard, it's, it's hard to find a job six months of training can make you into a an impressive artist it's i would challenge any industry to to present that to as a challenge i mean good good luck you know finding good luck finding an industry like that. that's what makes coffee such a beautiful industry i could i can i've seen these baristas go from oh i just got this part-time job to i'm i could have i could have a career here I'm, yeah. I feel like an artist. I feel like, and it gets down to the concept that we talk about a lot. You and I talk about a lot, Matt, is that concept of getting paid in a secondary currency, you know, alternative currency. Yeah. And let's and go more the, into that. Yeah. It's super important. And it really is probably the best example of natural economics being beneficial to individuals and community. And I think that's when the barista who, who, who comes in working for maybe, you know, $12 an hour, $16 an hour, and which could be, it seems like a lot of money to me when I was a kid, I was working for like $3 an hour, uh, so old I am, but you know, the, these, and they, that's enough to, that may be enough to kind of get them to, you know, happy with their summer job, or maybe they're just working through college or whatever. That's great. But what is a career? A career Careers are paid in multiple currencies. You know, first, obviously, you have to provide people a livable wage. And we've proven, the industry's proven that coffee can do that. There's a, a good training program can produce the revenues that, that allow a well-run shop, not a perfectly run well, uh, shop, but a well-run shop, uh, a seriously run shop to, to employ people who can make a living. But that's not enough. That's not enough as humans. We're not, we're not here for that. We are artists and we are, have senses and we have you know, emotions and we have options, choices. So to get the very best people and to keep them, we pay them in an alternative currency also. And that is the ability to get the, the admiration and love of the customer. And when, you, when that young barista hands a, a latte art, a, a beautiful cappuccino with, with a, a rosetta or a swan or a heart or a, all the other designs that are that you'll see in a latte art throwdown or a competition. They hand that to the customer. That's that reaction, that appreciation, that love is as valuable, if not more valuable than their wage. Of course, they need the wage to pay the rent. But they can get that anywhere. You know, you can get that working. I'm not. I'm knocking shoe stores. Shoe stores are fine. But, <laughs> shoe you know, stores. but you know, you don't have a lot of time to put your. You don't have a lot of Can't time. You don't have a lot of opportunities. Yes. It's really 
you might be able to. I'm going to hold that, put a bookmark on that because I'm going to talk about that too. I think that's really important. There is a way. But I do think that that coffee offers, you know, the coffee industry offers a unique ability for people to pay their employees in multiple meaningful and valuable currencies. And, and the number one starts with a livable wage. Definitely doable. We've proven it. And then keep, how do you keep people for a lifetime? How do you keep people, give them a chance to make art for the customer and then to show, and then moving up the ladder to, to be a trainer and show others, other baristas that are coming in how to do that. And then move up how to show your wholesale customers how to do that. And, and that, that keeps going. You become a superstar in this business pretty quickly because those skills, while they are, look very difficult and they are challenging, anyone, anyone who wants to can learn how to pour beautiful latte art. I've seen it thousands of times. Where do you think the, the required passion comes from? Do they come in there with it or do they learn it? The best Baristas, the ones with the most potential, have no idea it's there. They don't even know that there's art waiting for them. They just walk in and they see the barista that's training them or working with them. They just look over the shoulder and they're like, what the hell was that? I just, that changed my life. That made, awesome. this, is, this is not a job. This is a lifestyle. This is something that I can grow with and will grow with me. And I've often seen that these alternative currencies can turn into real currencies in the case of Presentia Latte Art. And I like what uh, Kali does, at least one of them. They have a tip jar at the front where they, where they take the order. There's also a tip jar where they give you your latte or your, or your coffee. I and suppose. you present this art and this like, it almost that translates into the extra appreciation for the time they took to make that for you and you tip them again and yeah well maybe if that's again you know tip you know I, I don't know if you know this or any of your listeners know this but tip originally stands for to ensure promptness ah. and it's an old old term and probably from the you know 18th century and then and and so maybe the second tip is to ensure perfection or you know you, to, you know but there are it's not only you're but it's a good point. Really what you're saying, I guess, is the customer's receiving two products. Mm -hmm. They're receiving everything they got with when coffee was 50 cents. You know, they're getting the caffeine delivery system. Mm -hmm. They're having that, that, that expected retail exchange. And then, but then they're getting the surprise and they're getting the delight and they're getting something that you can't get at McDonald's. You can't get that. You can get kindness. You can get friendliness. But can you get artistry? You yeah. know, can you get a bespoke experience for under five dollars? Good luck with that throughout your day. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, we definitely blew past the whole pour, and 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 <laughs> I guess the only thing I want to get into a little bit is what were uh, some of your challenges early on about building the team of baristas who were learning to be baristas in that fashion and that growing in that growing change of coffee and, and uh, specialty coffee and third wave coffee. You could probably talk a little bit about that. I guess you were discovering along with them. Yeah. You know, I'm, I, I don't like to, I don't believe in the entrepreneur story is like, you know, they, well, I work, you know, 900 hours a week and in a snowstorm. No, it's, it, it was, it was a joy and it was easy. Those, the, there were no challenges with 
employees, no significant challenges with, with attracting, with recruiting, training, and keeping, I guess, retaining those employees. We, we did not have challenges because we had multiple currencies. I can't emphasize how important that is in any business to have multiple, if you, if you, you can create multiple currencies by simply maybe having an in, in-house competition for who can provide the best customer service based on ratings, you know, multiple currencies. Get recognized. Don't just, paycheck is not enough rec- uh, recognition for, for employees, particularly young people who, well, everyone, but, you know, young people, mostly, most of our employees are, you know, their first or second so, job they've had. You know, so, what advice would you have for somebody that's maybe struggling with that turnover and, and what would they have to what would you suggest them to look for those alternative currencies? What, how, how would they look for those or create those? Well, the first, the first job, the first currency you have to make sure is set is that you must pay your employees a livable wage. You have to pay them something. Now, if they can't work in as, enough hours, if they think you, you know, no one's going to if they can work, you know, eight or ten hours a week, you're, you know, it's livable by the hour. You know, they need to be able to make, you know. 16 to 20 dollars an hour that now is that livable it's borderline livable for a young person who's who's just starting out and you know, maybe has a roommate that's definitely doable if they're working and location 30 yeah. hours a week and locate right all of that but you your job as an operator and as a manager is to ensure that your employees are paid a wage that is respectable that allows them to look and look in the mirror every morning and say this is worth it it's worth it getting up and doing this and they're not preoccupied with Thinking what what other jobs are out there for them because that'll destroy an industry very quickly. You know, if you if, you're, if all your employees are thinking what else is out there, asking their customers that walk in, hey, do you know anyone who's hiring? You don't want that. You want to create a sustainable business that can afford itself. If you don't have, if you don't have employees who are being paid a livable wage, you don't have a business. You have a plantation. Yeah. So so we want to in our industry is to to set up a standard so that people are paid a livable wage. Once you have that locked down, then it becomes easy because you don't have to worry about people constantly looking for jobs elsewhere. It takes that pressure off of you a little bit. Then you can focus on training and quality control and you recognize, well, what is your job as, as a cafe operator? Well, you have the lever and you could apply this to other retail, uh, retail uh, sectors. You have these three levers, right? I always talk about quality, customer service, and atmosphere. It's three things. Those are the three levers that you have. You don't have any more. And you have, you have all three if you're an operator of a cafe. And so, you know, those are the three things you can control. And if they're not always going to be strong all the time, you know, you're going to have bad experiences at Caldi's. You're going to walk in, the place is going to be dirty. That's going to be a bad atmosphere. Or maybe the place is clean, but you got poor customer service because someone was in a bad mood or something. So, you, but you know, as long as you have two of them, most people are going to be okay, unless it's really horrific. You know, you got to, it's just a natural hedge, isn't it? Against, you know, just a bad experience. So if you recognize that a beautiful place with a good quality product with maybe not the best customer service experience is still a good experience. It's just math. A, uh, a place that is not looking so great today, but has great quality and great customer service. Well, we know those places, they're all over the place. You know, <laughs> there's, there's tons of places like that. So you do, do the math and just switch those around. You'll see that any combination of two, preferably all three are, are firing. You know, the better, the closer you get to that, that, that's the advice that I would give. Focus on those levers that you have of, of customer experience because they're, they comprise three things. 
what of the team, your leadership team, as as Caldies grew and your team communication, how important did that play into the growth of Caldies overall to where it is? The, the communication, well, we that was an area that I think we struggled and I think probably it's still like that. I I I think that is the most difficult element of running a business is that communication because once the business is successful some level um once it's kind of established once you're not in are we going to be around next month are we going to be able to pay the rent once you're past that level and your business is you know then the owner the instinct of that owner that manager is to grow so they're they're working that they're not going to be growing by trying to sell the doctor who comes in every morning two coffees instead of one that's not how you grow that's not the growth that i'm talking about you're trying to sell you're trying to sell your coffee to schnooks sell your coffee to Deerberg, sell your coffee to Kroger, trying to open new stores. So you're not working in the business, you're working on the business. And so often the owner of the business, the person, the top management is focused on, on working uh, on the business and, and leaving the people who are in the business to work in the business. And that's dangerous. So now you have the schism and that's a way of a schism. We have two, not competing, but different goals, primary goals, you know, one is to give the customer a great experience and the other is to grow the business. You, you, you have to, you have to make sure your business is in sync and that's where the communication is. And I think had we recognized that recognition is number one, you can't have to recognize it before you address it. That's super important. You can probably talk about that more than I yeah, can. Yeah. I was like, you're speaking to me, <laughs> speaking, speaking to me, like, you guys. Right. If you find any coffee shop out there that finds themselves in this particular situation, I would love to help reconnect your owner with your team. Please, because that would have, you know, as 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 successful as Callies has been, most of that growth is not because of me, but I can tell you that it would have been three or four times, and I kid you not, three or four times faster success or bigger success had we had that connection that right brain left brain connection mm-hmm. in in our business we didn't have it you know we didn't have it and it's exhausting when you don't have it because it's like your left hand is doing one thing your right hand is doing something else you can have both you just have to have those check-ins we call them meetings and we didn't have meetings we nobody has meetings unless there's a problem and it's too late you know yeah, so, so yeah. yeah so if if we could have had some help with that, or if we could have recognized it, we just didn't. We didn't recognize oh, yeah. it. It was, and even it if you're having meetings, there's a difference between ineffective and effective meetings. So definitely have to. We had so many ineffective meetings about everything, about everything, yeah. and and they were all well intentioned, and sometimes they would just turn into bitching sessions, and that's yep. great. It's great to vent, but it's not mm-hmm. necessarily productive. And a meeting without this basically turns into a meeting with a meeting without an agenda is really just a bitch session. <laughs> it's an excuse to have another meeting is basically what happens. Right. It's an invitation yeah. to have another meeting. And, exactly. And you're paying for those people to show up if after hours you or you're, or to close early for a meeting. We all seen signs on, on doors saying close for a staff meeting. You know, it's like, make sure that time is well used if you're going to piss off your customers and, yeah. and, and pay your customers and pay your employees at the same time. So, right. yeah. Yeah. So we're down to our final couple questions here. What what trends do you are you seeing from your outside perspective now in the beverage industry? Well, the beverage industry is like a, a 
insane right now. It's it's blown up. I mean, I think the number of SKUs in beverage is stock keeping units is 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 ridiculous. I mean, there's an energy drink for every thought of the day, mood of the day. You know, I I mean it. You know, so beverage. If you look at beverage overall, mm-hmm. I think it's gone crazy. <laughs> it's just gone crazy. Maybe it's great. Maybe. Maybe choices yeah. here. Maybe I'm just showing my age. I don't know, but it seems really like every time I go to the store, it's like there's a zillion beautifully designed bottles and cans and options also, fresh options, bubble tea, everything. It's, it's, there's so yeah. much of it out there. And it's, I think it's overwhelming to consumers. And it is really speaks to the problem is that it's just a product because the industry of co-packing, people that will make that product for you, most of these companies aren't making this themselves. They're just hiring a marketing person and coming up with a flavor profile and having someone make it for them. And they just notice why the cans are all the same size. It's because you know, the same company's producing all this stuff. They're just using a different label. I mean, it shouldn't be a secret to anybody. So it's, but what is it like? It may, it may be quality, maybe, but it's certainly, where's the customer service? Where's the atmosphere? Find, hedge yourself with business where you can control more levers. And when you're making a product that goes into the shelves of a Schnook store and they're lovely people, and we're glad that they're a, we're, we sell more coffee than anyone at Schnooks. Um, but, but make sure that you can present not just a, a, a beverage to satisfy a thirst, but also an experience to satisfy a need and an atmosphere to satisfy that sensory delight that we all seek. It's, it's, it's important. Yeah. Yeah. And for listeners out there that are not from Missouri, Schnucks Mm -hmm. is our local grocery store, pretty large one, kind of like a Kroger. So just let everybody know. Right. Right. Thank you. Right. And then finally you spent, you've watched this third wave coffee, well, grow. Have you ever landed on your most favorite beverage of all these espressos, black coffee, anything that you really just kind of can still come back to to this day well my most delightful favorite coffee beverage i should say beverage of all mm-hmm. is a naturally processed ethiopian hand brew that is yeah. that's my go-to now i'm not going to get too specific about you know whether it's a bee house or a chemex or you know i don't i'm going to leave that to the barista and I'm not going to get too too focused on the estate or the farm where the Ethiopian natural processed coffee comes from. I'm that that's dependent on the weather and the climate and the the hand of the barista. But but I will say that if you haven't experienced Kaldi's Ethiopian naturally processed hand brewed coffee, you treat treat yourself. Treat yourself. All right. Yeah. Well, you heard it here, <laughs> Howard. This was crazy informative. There's going to be people they are going to love to glean what you've learned. And I really do hope they listen to it, take it to heart. And a lot to be learned for new coffee shop owners and, and established coffee shop owners. I thank you a ton for your time. This was very valuable. And again, thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you, Matt. Thanks so much. And thanks for your good questions. All right. Help somebody. Have yeah. a good day. <laughs> Bye. Thank you for listening to Harvest of Poor, the business of beverages with Matthew Shep. Check the show notes for our guest contact information and connect with Matthew Shep on LinkedIn today.